Hello. Hi. Wow, what a roomful. What a blessing. And as you were saying, uh, Pastor Stephen, you know, just being together is something that maybe Christians have taken a little bit for granted, but when some of that is a little bit maybe threatened or delayed or restricted, we appreciate being together even more, don't we? And God's people gather. It's what we do. There's an irresistible force that draws us together. And it's not even just about being with each other, although that's an important part of it. It's about being gathered together around the throne and glorifying and praising our Savior like we've just been doing. And what, what a blessing, what a treasure that we get to do that here this week at camp. Thank you so much for inviting me, including me, Pastor Stephen, Pastor Phil, and appreciate the opportunity so very much. And really what, what you have here at camp and what you have even here in this state is something unusual. I hope you do not take it for granted. I hope that you do treasure it. Uh, the ministries available, the opportunities like this, the friendships you have, the families that come together and the, the, the camp here and just all of it, such a, a treasure. And I'm thankful to be part of it this week. Uh, I, I'm used to it. It's okay if you say, hi, Dean, where's Faith? Okay, I know. I'm used to that. So if you know my wife, if you've met her, maybe you've been some uh, a retreat or something where she has spoken and uh, she just connects with ladies and, and I'm sorry she's not able to be here. She just had pressing responsibilities this week. We are transitioning into the school year and a lot of things just converged on this week and so she had to stay back. And so her heart is here. She's praying for us this week. I bring her greeting and her love and I'll carry yours back to her, okay? And uh, so I'm very, very thankful for my wife and, and just the, the blessing that God has given us to serve at Faith Baptist Bible College. As Pastor Stephen said, we moved here four years ago and um, since then I've just really kind of settled in and appreciate the opportunities God has given us. I, do, uh, I work with the pastoral studies program at Faith Baptist Bible College and there's some guys here that I've had in classes in the program there and so great to connect with you guys and equipping a new generation of men for ministry. That's my heart, that's my passion, that's my mission now and carrying that out there. I also desire to be a friend to pastors. I pastored for about 25 years in three different ministries, and, and I have a heart to encourage pastors just to be a friend, a listening ear, a supportive voice, and encourage them. And so God has given me some opportunities that way. And then also to encourage biblical church growth is my heart as well. And I'll say some things about that along the way this week. So thank you for the opportunity, and I'm treasuring these times with you. I've been praying for God to just bring about what He desires. It's always fascinating to me to see how in a situation like this, God has prepared, He has orchestrated, He has brought people together. He has, he has prompted the speaker to deliver certain messages or talk about certain texts of Scripture or highlight certain applications and I pray for that as I prepare for something like this. And so it's exciting. It's an adventure. Uh, we are here to, to meet before God and to hear from Him. And so I, I thank God for the opportunity uh, to, to be His messenger and to open His Word with you. And so that's what we'll be doing this week. As I said, uh, I, I pastored for 25 years. I'll back up a little bit. I grew up in southeastern Ohio. And uh, my family went to kind of a a little bit of a variety of, of churches as I grew up. 
In fact, one of my earliest memories is uh, being in a Presbyterian church, an Orthodox Presbyterian church. And then uh, we were in, I guess you'd call kind of an IFB, Independent Fundamental Baptist type church for a while. We went to a Bible church for a while and then ultimately ended up in, in Baptist churches. But when I was eight years old, a nine-year-old boy walked up to me and said, Dean, have you ever accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? <laughs> and I said, no, I haven't. And little nine-year-old Stephen started just witnessing to me and telling me the gospel and urging me to get saved. And ultimately, God used him and his dad to point me to Christ and to lead me to trust Jesus Christ as my Savior. So it's fun to think back about those two little boys, you know, little guys running around the church, whatever, and, and God used him to witness to me. He's now, in a, he is a missionary in South Korea. No surprise there, God is still using him in a great way. But as I grew up in those churches, you know, just a variety of experiences, and, and then when I went to college and then seminary and all of that, was involved in a church. And as I started in pastoral ministry, I've been in Baptist churches since then. In fact, I was thinking back to uh, when I was younger, my family was involved in a GARB church plant in Ohio. And so just, just kind of weaving in and out of different settings there. But, but a couple of things that, that I remember, and I guess I would say I've observed in that time of growing up and even pastoring in ministry in churches... Uh, we all know that there are problems, there are issues that come up in church life and in families. And I would say this, that for the most part, these problems are not related to primarily problems with doctrinal issues, all right? In other words, a church has a statement of faith and a doctrinal statement, and that's all you know, in black and white, and everybody agrees to that, and everybody signs off on that to be a member of the church. And there may be some, some discussions or little debates or disagreements, occasionally maybe some division over maybe like a secondary doctrine, something that's not of primary importance. Um, but, but usually the problems and the issues are not necessarily about doctrine. Usually they are more personal in nature. Usually they are related to either sin, somebody gets involved in some kind of particular sin and goes off in a sinful direction in life, and that affects them as an individual, it hurts their family, it affects the church ministry and all of that. Or there is a problem with a hurt or an offense between people. So it's a comment, it's a maybe overlooking something or somebody isn't chosen for a particular opportunity um, or there's just this disagreement and individuals or families can end up dividing and separating and at odds with each other. And that's what I have observed really more surfacing in church ministry is that type of problem. And what I've found is this, is that people can become entrenched in, in that problem and in, in their position and in their, their uh, resistance and even bitterness against somebody else and just really kind of lock into that. And sometimes people just don't know how to move forward, don't know how to resolve an issue. If there is a problem, if there is a hurt, if there is an offense, how to go about resolving that. And we know that Jesus Christ prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17 that we would all be what? One. 
even as he said, we are one, speaking of himself and the Father and the Spirit. So unity is God's will, isn't it? And unity is something that God wants us to experience and to receive the blessings of that, but there's so many threats and there's so many ways that we're vulnerable to problems with that. In fact, a church can be doctrinally sound, but relationally sick. And people can sign off on the doctrinal statement in good conscience and yet have serious problems with other people and not be getting along with fellow believers. Relationships are important to God. That's a simple statement, right? But would you agree with that? Relationships are important. In fact, God created us for relationship with him. And he made Adam and Eve to live in relationship with each other and told them, you're going to be one. And God ordained the family and designed the church with relationships. But relationships are vulnerable to hurts and to conflict and to offenses. And that is true. We are vulnerable because we are individuals, right? We're unique. We have our own ideas, our own uh, opinions, our own strongly held positions, and just ways of doing life. So, so there's potential for conflict and problems because we're individuals, but especially because we are sinners and because we have within us that self-centeredness and that desire to please ourselves and do what we want, even when it comes to not doing what God wants. And that's where the problem lies. And so relationships are vulnerable to hurt and conflict. Relationships must be cultivated and protected and when necessary, recovered. And so if we are going to cultivate and protect and even recover relationships, there's some issues for us to talk about. On one level, there are heart issues, right? We have to deal with our hearts. There are elements of truth the way God's word guides and governs our lives. And then there are some practical issues as well. As I said, sometimes we just don't know how. Okay, I got a problem with somebody. How do I move forward? What words do I say? What steps do I follow? And so tonight through Wednesday, we're going to be exploring some of these elements of heart issues and truth and practical elements as well of, of our relationships. And it's going to go broader than that. It'll affect really all of life. But, but we'll focus in on, on the relationship element. And it won't be exhaustive. There's a whole lot we could talk about. But again, I think God has directed me to a few specific areas that we will explore and talk about. And I believe it will help you. But also, please keep this in mind. If you're a mature believer, and maybe you are engaged with, with discipling other people, you always have the opportunity to help other people too, don't you? So what you hear, I hope, will not only help you, but also equip you to be able to help and minister, minister to somebody else as well. So what I'm going to do tonight is call this a coffee shop conversation, all right? There's a page in your notes for tonight. There's a title, and it's blank, and that's, that's on purpose, because I'm going to just sort of start laying some things out in front of you. And the way I want to treat this is if you and I are sitting together at a coffee shop, and we're having a conversation and, and maybe in the course of this conversation, a situation comes up and maybe you have a difficult issue with another person. Maybe it's a conflict, maybe it's a hurt, or, or possibly there's somebody that you're trying to help who has this kind of situation. And, 
And you say, so, so Pastor Dean, what do you think? Can you give me any advice? Can you give me any guidance on dealing with this or on helping, helping this person? And at some point, I would talk through what I'm going to share with you now. In fact, this is something that in my pastoral counseling course, I teach to our pastoral students who are preparing for ministry because this is the kind of thing that you can, can carry with you in your mind. And if you have an opportunity to sit down with somebody and talk through a problem, I find this very helpful. It's helped me, and I think it could be helpful to you. And, and what I'm calling this is identifying idols and cultivating love because that's what we need to do to deal with the heart issues that we struggle with in our relationship is identify some idols that are the source of the problem and then to cultivate love. So where do we start? Is there one truth package that we could look to that will get us pointed in the right direction? Well, I believe there is. I'm going to ask you to turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 22. Matthew, chapter 22. So as we talk about identifying idols and cultivating love, especially as it affects our relationships with other people, is there some primary truth that we can go to? Well, Jesus identified Again, I'm going to use this word fundamental. Jesus identified the fundamentals of life before God and life with others here in Matthew chapter 22. And let me read for us starting in verse 36. Matthew 22, verse 36. Pharisees say to Jesus, teacher, Matthew 22, 36. By the way, I'll be uh, referring to the scriptures in the New King James Version this week as I speak. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So there, Jesus Christ pronounces for us these great commandments, and he tells us what our primary responsibilities in life are. They are to love God with your whole being, is the idea. No reservations, nothing held back, not compartmentalizing, not kind of giving God my religious due and then sort of living my life as I want to. Not saying, oh yes, of course I love God. I believe in God. God is awesome. God is great. And then, oh, I can treat other people any way that I want to. No, it's, it's wholehearted. So the command is to love God wholeheartedly with your whole being. And this is a life-governing truth. And the other aspect of this is to love others as well, right? He says to love others as yourself. You want what you want. You want what pleases you. You want what is best for you. And he says, you know what? That's the way you need to love other people. You need to want to esteem others and do what is best for other people. So he's saying, love God wholeheartedly. And I'm going to use the word here, unselfishly. So not just loving yourself, but loving others in an unselfish way, treating them as you would want to be treated, right? Esteeming them and doing what is best for them. 
So love God wholeheartedly, love others unselfishly. We're good. We got that, right? Anybody struggle with that? (laughs) I mean, he set the bar, I'm going to use the word impossibly, high. That is the ultimate in God's will, right there. There it is. Now, we know Jesus Christ is the only one who completely and perfectly can fulfill these expectations. But these are God's instructions. These are how we are to live. This is what we are to pursue. This is what we're to be growing toward. And I'm making some assumptions here because if, if you have Christ in your life, if you are a believer in Jesus, if you've been born again, you have Christ living in you. And the ability to do this is based on that being real, that being true of you. You have Christ in your life. You are born again. He is inside of you, his Holy Spirit enabling you to live out in these ways. But we still struggle with this, don't we? Well, these go together. If you love God wholeheartedly, you will love others unselfishly, right? They go together. If you don't love God wholeheartedly, you will not love others unselfishly. And so let's start with our love for God. We're talking about relationships, but let's start with our love for God and focus on what we can learn about this. Is it possible to love something or someone more than God or rather than God? Is there competition in your life for a wholehearted love for God that then generates an unselfish love for other people? Oh yeah, there are all kinds of competition, all kinds of sources of competition out there. The Bible identifies some of this for us. I'm going to put this text on the screen. You're welcome to turn to 1 John chapter 2, but it is up here if you're able to read that. Um, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. This really is the flip side of the greatest commandment. Now, if you're already getting frustrated because I haven't given you a proposition in point number one with alliteration and A and B, I'll just tell you right now, this message is not going to be like that, okay? (laughs) All right? Remember, this is you and me sitting at a coffee shop. I might pull out a, you know, a little notepad or maybe even, you know, unfold a napkin and start drawing little things on there. That's what this is. We're having this conversation. I'm laying some things out there for you. So however you want to capture this on your paper, um, that, that's up to you. That's the idea. I'm, I'm delivering to you some elements I think will, will help you think about this and help others as well. So this is the flip side of the greatest commandment. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now, where do we see love for God, our love for God, in this text? Well, we see it in that little phrase, the love of the Father, in the third and the fourth line there, the love of the Father. Now, this could be taken two ways. This could be talking about, grammatically, could be talking about, Our love for God or God's love for us. The love of the Father could be our love for God or God's love for us. It's left a little bit vague here. But to interpret this, we think about the context, and I lean toward the fact that this is most likely talking about our love for God. 
And the reason is he's talking about the competition. He's talking about things that might draw us away, things that might captivate our desires and direct our lives away from God and toward this world system that is apart from and opposed to God, right? So our love for the Father, he says, if you love the world, then there is not a love for the Father in you. So that's where we're talking here, where we see the aspect of the love for God. So what is competing with your love for God? Well, there are three elements there. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And I'm going to give this some terminology here. So again, I'm going to scribble this out for you on my little notepad and say, all right, let's talk about these, the lust of the flesh. The word lust is just the word desire. Is there anything wrong with desire? No. We naturally have desires. We have God-given desires. We can fulfill those desires in ways that God intended, or we can fill them in ways that are outside of God's will and of God's instructions. Or we can fulfill those desires in ways that are in absolute disobedience to God, right? So what he's talking about here are desires, lusts, strong passions and appetites that are influenced by things around us that are in the world, right? So the lust of the flesh, there are things that our flesh craves that we enjoy. And let's just call that the love of pleasure. Do you struggle with this? Are there things that maybe are pleasing to you that you would love to have or do, but sometimes those are outside of God's will for you or God's will at this time in your life? Yeah, for sure. We have desires, right? And sometimes we have to say no to those, those desires. And they're very strong and they're compelling. And there's nothing wrong with pleasure, right? God gives us all things to enjoy in his will, his way, and his time. Nothing wrong with pleasurable things. I, I'm vulnerable. I'm tempted. I, I, I wrestle with this. Donuts are my downfall, and there are certain times of day and certain kinds of donuts that are just, it's almost overpowering. We live in Johnston, just outside Des Moines. I was driving down 86th Street in Johnston the other day. There is a brand new Dunkin' Donuts storefront. And they've got every window filled with Dunkin' Donuts pink, right? And they have their own unique color. And immediately, as I see that an image of a glazed blueberry cake donut pops into my head, and my mouth literally starts watering, okay? That's, that's the response that I feel, all right? You're wondering what I did, aren't you? <laughs> I kept driving. It's like, nope, I'm not going to do that right now. Man, I'm 57. I'm working on this. I'm trying to maintain, you know, so I'm trying to be a little bit careful and not just indulge whenever I want to. One of the first times I actually came up here to IRBC, I, I got off at the exit coming north on uh, 35. I turned right and ended up at the quick, quick star, quick stop, whichever one it is. And I walked in there and somebody had unloaded a truckload of bakery goods, cookies and cinnamon roll, ice cinnamon rolls and boxes of donuts on tables in there and they do that on purpose right there at the entrance so you walk in you see them even if you go through the whole store you're thinking about it the whole way and then when you come back to check out you got to stand in line by these stacks of stuff don't you 
And that's when I got hooked on quick stop glazed blueberry cake donuts, right? <laughs> Literally, as I pulled off today, I came to the stop sign, I went like this. <laughs> I'm not, not going there. Donuts are my kryptonite. I have to just like be really careful about that. Nothing sinful about donuts, nothing wrong with donuts, but you get the idea, right? We have these desires, and they can be for good things, but they can turn into cravings, and, and they please us, things that bring us pleasure, and that can compete with our love for God, right? So the, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the love of things, I see it, and therefore I want it. I want to obtain it. I want to have it. I want to drive it. I want it to land on my porch, and I want to open the box and and hold it and have it. Somebody else has it. And so therefore I think I want to, I have it. I deserve it. So there's this, this craving for things. And then uh, the pride of life. And that really is turned inward. That is, that is the love of self, right? We love our own lives. We love to be better. We love to have attention. We love to be in charge or have things done our way. And this is just the raw reality of who we are. And this is in complete opposition to loving God, and these are the elements that draw us away and pull us away. Now, I want to tell you a little bit of a scenario, and this is a, a compilation of a few different real situations, uh, but not one person or one couple, but it's real. I mean, this is real. So, so I'm sitting down with a couple, let's call them Tom and Julie, and uh, they, they met in a bar, they got married. They became Christians, but they argued, they fought, they were talking about divorce, they showed up at an attorney's office to get a divorce, the attorney was a Christian, he was a member of my church, he said, hey, would you like to come to church? They came to church, they sat down with me and said, can you help us? And so we began to talk. But uh, they, they were just, I don't mean physically killing each other, but I mean figuratively, they were just having it out, right? Every day was a battle. And, and he worked hard in construction and, I mean, just, just killed, you know, working. I mean, just hard working, was tired. And she was very high energy and very intense. They had some small children. And, and he would come home and there would be this, it was like walking in the door into a war zone and there would be this, this battle. And he had developed some, some ways of dealing with this and he loved to hunt. Nothing wrong with hunting. But he loved, there's that word, right, loved to hunt, loved his truck, loved his guns. And, and instead of heading home to the war zone, sometimes he would head out to the, the woods, right, during hunting season after work. And uh, then come home later, and then, you know, she's like, where you been? I'm trying to handle the kids, and it's been a crazy day. She would start talking to her friends and running him down, talking about how bad of a husband he was and all of that. Uh, he started escaping with porn, indulging in pornography, and, and she just began to just fight back, and, and they just grew apart. Very, very, uh, very, very pronounced division there in, in their lives, and they were at that point where they pretty much lost hope. Now, I want to think through this for a second in relation to these three areas, right, just this scenario. Um, what, what was in Tom's life that might fit in the category of, of the lust of the flesh, things that brought him pleasure? Well, he loved the outdoors. Anything wrong with loving the outdoors? I love being outdoors. But if being outdoors draws you away from primary responsibilities of life so that you're neglecting those, right, then that's a problem, right? There's competition there. 
He, he loved to hunt. Nothing wrong with that, right? Nothing morally wrong with that. Um, but again, that, that can become more of an obsession or an escape. And then, of course, pornography is a moral issue, right? Uh, being, being morally impure. Uh, lust of the eyes, well, when you want every single caliber and kind of, of rifle and want that uh, uh, cabinet to be full and, and you know, the, the latest truck and the most gear. I used to have a saying um, with some of my people I would hike with and do outdoor stuff with. It's not all about the gear, but it's a lot about the gear, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, having the right gear is great, right? It helps and it's fun, right? So yeah, it's nice to have all the gear. But loving the gear and spending too much money on the gear and spending hundreds of dollars without having a discussion with your wife about the gear. Okay, now I've got a problem, right? So, so lust of the eyes and pride of life. Man, he was mad. He was so mad. And, and he thought that he deserved her affection. He deserved her submission. He deserved her honor instead of this, you know, this battle that he was facing. On the other hand, uh, Julie, we could say lust of, uh, lust of the flesh, love of pleasure, had in her mind kind of the ideal family and home. Now we all want to have a Christian home, a nice home, right? Happy family. But she had kind of idealized that, maybe romanticized that somewhat, glamorized that. Uh, lust of the eyes. Um, and there's so much of that out there, right? Um, Instagram, everything, right? And let, let's just say again, for the case of the scenario, she's following moms of Instagram, right? So there's all these, these people and these scenes and these families and these, these awesome moms. And it, it's just so, so large in her mind. And then the pride of life. She was concerned about what her friends thought of her and her family. And so these elements are all now, now converging in their lives and creating this disruption of harmony and this, this anger toward each other and hostility. And it was bad. By the grace of God, they began taking little steps forward and together and are together today, as far as I know. God was very, very gracious in that situation. But the point of it is this. There are elements that can compete with our love for God and they affect our relationships with other people. Now, let me ask you a question. What is it if you love something more than God or love something instead of God or love something that takes you away from obeying God and loving others as you should? What do we call that? Well, that's an idol, isn't it? So now we're having coffee and now we're scribbling on the notepad and, and now we're saying, uh, so what is it called if you love something more than or other than God or that draws you away from obeying God and loving others as you should? Maybe it's you or maybe it's you with somebody else that kind of has to be humble and say, you know what, I'll just be honest. That's an idol. That's an idol. In fact, Paul says it this way in Colossians 3, 5. He's talking about covetousness, which probably fits with this idea of the lust of the eyes. He says in Colossians 3, 5, covetousness is idolatry. It is idolatry. And there it is in connection with that one element. You want something instead of or more than God or it diminishes your love for God, draws you away from obeying him. It is an idol. Now, we're going to approach this from a little different angle for a few minutes and, and talk about some symptoms. So, so if we're talking about loving God or not loving God, uh, what, what are some symptoms of misdirected love? And go with me, please, to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. 
Uh, I was just talking with somebody here today about this, this passage a little bit. And it, I mean, there's, again, there's so much here. You know, verses, I mean, are all in context. There's a flow of thought. And, and we're just kind of parachuting in a little bit here. But he just got finished talking about wisdom from above that helps you in your relationships with others and to have peaceable relationships. Some great uh, verses leading up to it there, chapter 3. But then chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, James 4, 1 and 2. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure? That war in your members, you lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss and you spend it on your pleasures. Look at verse 4. Adulterers and adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And you could read on and see the flow of thought here. So he's just laying it out right there for us, isn't he? He's saying, well, why are you fighting? Why are you having these arguments? Why are you, why are you engaged in a pitched battle with people that you should be in harmony with and wanting the best for and doing the best for unselfishly. That's because you want stuff. And you want it so much that you're willing to, to be in conflict with others over it. And even, he says, you are in opposition to God. And that is strong stuff. So we might say a symptom of misdirected love is conflict. Is there conflict in your life? Are you in conflict with someone? Would this describe you as arguing a way of life in your family, in your marriage, with somebody in your church, with your pastor, with your church member, uh, with somebody at work? Are you just known as an argumentative person? Are you in a pitched battle with somebody? Is there a longstanding feud? Neighbors have problems sometimes. I mean, I, again, the stories come to mind, but... Um, one guy I knew just had this feud over the property line and where the property line was. And, and the guy that was the most mad about it was the guy in my church, right? He's the Christian that's supposed to have the, have the testimony. So, so is that a way of life? Is there a symptom in your life of a misdirected love? Is anger and conflict present? The other one is in Galatians chapter 5. So let's go there. Galatians chapter 5. This is a key text with all of this. And he's telling us to live or walk in a way that is guided and governed by the Spirit of God. Walk in the Spirit, verse 16, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But I'm going to drop down to verse 19 where he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. Right? So I'm just, I'm just um, extracting those out for a minute here. And saying that another symptom of a lack of love for God and of being controlled by your own desires is moral impurity, right? And he, he's listing some facets of that, some ways that that is manifest there in, in verse 19. Is there a moral impurity in your life? Whether it's the way you look or how long you look or what you think when you look or what you're looking at or where you're going on the internet... What you're covering, what you're hiding, what you're indulging in, what you're escaping to, man or woman, adult or teen, cross the board. Pornography's there. It's a problem. 
So are you indulging in that? If so, that whatever level of sexual impurity and immorality is there, whether it's just looking or anything beyond that, that is a symptom of a lack of love for God. It's a symptom that you are desire-driven, right? But notice what he goes on to say. Uh, verse 20, idolatry, there it is, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions. Now we're into the conflicts, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, so conflict again, but also the element of moral impurity. And these are symptoms of a problem, a deeper problem, a heart issue. Is there an unresolved issue with another person in your life? And what do you love so much? And what do you want so badly that you're willing to disobey God and destroy that relationship to have? And is it worth it to you? And are you willing to say, you know something? I'll be honest and I'll be humble and say, yeah, there is. And I'm willing to consider the fact that maybe there's an idol there. And to be honest with God about that. If you have a desire to move in the direction of removing idols and cultivating love, then let's go to Romans chapter 13 and talk about a choice. Romans chapter 13. We're kind of stringing some text together here, which I don't normally do. But the way I'm approaching this again is more of a conversation and maybe something I would walk somebody through, whether in one conversation or a series of sessions. But here we are faced with a spiritual choice. Look with me at Romans chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. There you see those, those words we're talking about. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Now, we could do a deep dive into the doctrine of your identification with Christ, your union with Christ. What this is talking about is put on the Lord Jesus Christ is You've been united with Jesus Christ in his death and burial and resurrection when you became a Christian. But now you have the opportunity and responsibility to live out who you are in Jesus Christ. You're a new creation in Jesus Christ, right? You have the, the potential, you have the ability, you have the support, it's all there. You live in resurrection power, and so you can do this, you can do this, but you have to make the choice. And that choice is a matter of repenting and saying, I don't want that anymore. I'm not going to live in these ways or be controlled by these attitudes or actions anymore. I'm going to, the best I am able, love God with my whole heart, love others. I'm going to love God wholeheartedly, love others unselfishly, and be who I am in Jesus Christ. So consider who you are in Jesus Christ and live out the transformed life. Read Romans 6. It's a great, great explanation of what that's all about. And just consider who you are in Christ and how to live that out. Yield to God. Let him transform you from within. But it all starts with a choice, right? He says, put on, renew, replace, resolve, and appropriate who you are in Jesus Christ. Now, what will the result be? 
the result will be that your life will take on the characteristics of the person of Jesus Christ in the form of the fruit of the Spirit. Take a look at these, and these are the ones we didn't read from, didn't read from Galatians chapter 5. Which ones of these show up in relationships? I'm pretty sure love does, right? Joy, yep. My wife knows if I'm joyful or not. Peace, yep. Long-suffering, absolutely. Gentleness, yeah. Goodness, faithfulness, some maybe more indirectly. Meekness, definitely. Self-control, yes. So you'll be a different person in your home, where you work, in your church, when you're controlled by the person of Christ and these facets of character are being manifest in you. Which one's at the top of the list? Well, of course, it's love, isn't it? In fact, some people say that the primary fruit of the Spirit is love and the rest are different manifestations of it. So here's the question. The people around you, would they say, this describes you. I have a great neighbor. We moved in our neighborhood four years ago. Become really good friends with this neighbor. He's just a great guy. He's a believer. He's his own man. He's a cowboy at heart. He walks around the cul-de-sac in his cowboy hat. And sometimes he's wearing his, his uh, pink Crocs uh, and shorts. But sometimes he's got his shorts and his cowboy boots on. Sometimes he's got his cowboy hat and his jeans and his boots and his spurs. And sometimes he's wearing his chaps. And sometimes he's riding his bike. So he's just, he's a unique individual. He's my buddy. Vern and I are buddies, okay? Seriously. So a couple years ago, we decided to, to uh, redo our kitchen. And, and I was painting all the cabinets. They're, you know, oak, finished wood, painting them all white. So I had all the doors off out in my garage, made these racks and had the doors on these racks. And, and somebody said, you should use a sprayer, right? I'm not a Mr. Fix-It guy or handyman, but somebody said, you should use a sprayer. You know, get that nice smooth finish. So I got a sprayer. I've got paint in the sprayer. I've got paints like spilling out on the floor and the nozzles jamming and it's hot. It's, you know, July. And I'm out there just sweating. And Vern comes over and sits down on a bucket and says, what you doing? Starts talking to me. And I said, I'm so frustrated with this sprayer. I can't get it to work. He said, Dean, God doesn't want you to be mad. He wants you to use your head and figure it out, you know? <laughs> so we got it, man. I said, you know what, Vern? You are absolutely right. You're absolutely right. So here's my neighbor challenging me, rebuking me. What's he seeing? Well, he wasn't seeing joy right then or a few other of those either, right? What do people around us see? What do they observe? What would they say? How would they evaluate us? Let's end this way, and I'm going to click through these pretty quickly. Let's just say that we're wrapping up our, our uh, coffee shop conversation. You've been taking notes, and you decide to jot down a few ideas, or maybe something to think about and take with you, and here are a few questions to consider. And what I hope is that you will consider these questions even over the next hours and days this week. How is my love for God? And ask God to help you know the answers. What symptoms are in my life of love for pleasure, love for things, and love for myself? Maybe there is conflict. Maybe there is moral impurity. Am I willing to call these idols 
and repent of them and cultivate love for God and others? Would my family or whoever's close to you, whoever knows you, use these words to describe me? And the last one is really more of a a resolve, maybe a prayer, something to think about and pray and resolve by God's grace every day. I will live out who I am in Christ and yield to his spirit so that as much as it depends on me, my life displays the character of God, especially in the way that I relate to others. Father, may this be our prayer. May these truths be embedded in our hearts, transform us from within, help us to be honest and humble, help us to grow. Thank you for the hope in Christ. Thank you for the resurrection power in us. May we glorify you. May we love you wholeheartedly and love others unselfishly. Because of Christ, amen.